Welcome to Out of the Blank. another episode of out of the blank podcast greg it's a pleasure to have you back man we got some areas i need clarification on uh mostly i'm trying to understand oswald a little bit and you've written a book about oswald um and you focus more in areas where people i would say way before the assassination and i'm just curious can you take me through oswald's military career could you take me through anything that you feel comfortable addressing um to, i guess from the start well, let's let's start at the at the start in New Orleans, uh, when he first um, more or less ambushed his mother coming home from work. Uh, he had another an adult with him, who Marguerite uh, assumed was a a recruitment officer, because he was dressed in a military uniform, um, and Os Oswald himself was dressed in his uh, cap uniform. Um, which indicates to me that he'd just come from a cat meeting and that the person with him was actually David Ferry because Ferry was well known for wearing, even though he, he had never been in the military himself, uh, he was well known for wearing a military uniform around the place. So, and, and he was also known for encouraging uh, cadets to join the Marines. So I think the so-called uh, recruitment officer was actually David Ferry. Uh, and, and they were both there to, to, as I say, ambush Marguerite and try and talk her into uh, allowing uh, Lee to join the Marines early uh, by forging documents about his age, uh, because she'd done that with uh, with her older son, John. Uh, in this case, she, she refused to do it. So they were, they were forced to wait um, until he actually turned 17. By that stage, They'd actually gone to San Diego to, to uh, the, sorry, they'd gone to um, Fort Worth and joined there. Um, I've heard that he tried to join the Marines, but he was too young. But then later he was. Well, that, that was what I was just explaining. Yeah, he he uh, he he didn't actually attempt to join. Um, I think he. Well, actually, he did. You're right. He did. He, he forged because Marguerite wouldn't sign a forged document. Uh, he forged her her uh, signature on a forged document. So, but it, it didn't get anywhere. It didn't didn't do any good. So when when he finally got accepted the second time, did he wait till he was old enough, or did he go a year under? No, he was. He joined on his seventh birthday. Um, the the there's an interesting fact about that too that. When you join, you've got to declare whether you've been rejected in, in the past or, or if you've applied to join in the past. And he ticked no on that when, in fact, uh, he had, as you say, falsely uh, tried to join. So that, in effect, should have been a red flag for the Marines right there if they, if they had discovered his lie, because he basically li lied to get in, that he had, uh, that he had not tried before to get, to get in. 
it, was he given a psychological was he given a psychological exam? I'm not sure that that was a thing back then. I, I think probably a very cursory one uh, would have been uh, would have been applied, especially after we're talking about post um, post Korean War, where uh, psychological factors were became evident uh, for for prisoners of war. So I think they probably did start to get a bit more serious about psychological factors beforehand. Um, but he certainly would have been given a, a physical, and how he passed—that's another another matter. Because he w was most of his life, he was partially deaf in one ear from otitis media, uh, and for a radar operator to be partially deaf, you'd have to say that's probably a bit of a concern. But he seemed to be able to do the job okay, even though he did actually suffer from otitis media in his military career. So, um, what, what exactly is that? It's a buildup of fluid in the, in the, in the middle, middle ear area, I believe. Is that a chronic thing? It's like, thing you know, when had... you go swimming and get water in. Is that a chronic thing he had from when he was a child or? Yeah, he had, he had actually had an operation uh, when he was a child to try and alleviate it, but it, it wasn't very successful because he kept, he kept on having it. Uh, in school, he was um, he was reported as being partially deaf in one ear, uh, and I think in, in the Marines, I think there's also uh, a report on him suffering otitis media and having problems with hearing. Um, now, before we get into his travels, travel purposes in the Marines, I want to talk about his schooling real quick. There's an, uh, uh, I remember seeing a documentary, a psychological exam was given to Oswald at the age of like 13 or something like that. And he was unstable. I don't know if it was an incident that he had with a neighbor or someone calling the cops on him for doing something that was like punk kid stuff. I don't know if you've come across anything like that before. Well, I have, but it was it's not in the official records. It was a, a few years ago, there was a, a story on one of the anniversaries about someone who recalled him throwing rocks at a building. Um, I don't know whether that's what we're refer, referring to, but that was never that was never brought up in any of the official records. That was just someone from that area recalling Ottawa from back then. Um, I'm just trying to understand because I, it didn't make sense because then we see the school book photos of Oswald and he's like laughing and he seems completely opposite from what this alleged psychological exam said that he was like a. Well, I'll, I'll get to the logic. I'll, I'll get to the exam in a second. But um, what what he was he was put into a, a place called youth, uh, youth House, which um, was court ordered because of his truancy. Um, he was rarely going to school in New York, and that was put down to the fact that uh, kids made fun of his accent and uh, the fact that he wore jeans and all that sort of thing, um, that he looked different. Um, so he used to stay home. Margaret would be at work all day. He'd stay home and read comics and, and watch TV, uh, or, or either that or, or ride the subway, go exploring. Um, so he, he, New York was very big on, on truancy, unlike Louisiana, which was very slack about the whole thing. Yeah, truancy wasn't uh, treated as a big deal in Louisiana 
but it was taken very seriously in New York. Um, and when he became a truant and was at home more often than he was at school, uh, the school set the truancy officers out after him. He, he was rounded up. He ended up in court with Marguerite. I think he had at least two, maybe three appearances in court uh, before it was decided to put him into youth house uh, for observation. In youth house, uh, he was there for two weeks. There were reports done by social workers and the head chief psychiatrist, a guy, a German guy called Renatus Hartogs. Um, now, there's an interesting thing about that is that uh, after the assassination, uh, his um, probation office, officer was a, a, a guy called John Caro. He was interviewed by, by the papers when they found out that he had this problem. And Caro reported to them that the psychiatric report done at Youth House indicated he was potentially dangerous and should be institutionalised. Um, so when Renatus Hartogs appeared before the Warren Commission, they asked him whether he had written such a report. And he said, yeah, yeah, that was my report. The language you're quoting to me is language that I use in those types of reports. So yeah, he was a dangerous kid. He should have been, he should have been put away for treatment. Um, the, the thing of it is that, that the Warren Commission for all its faults actually knew the truth and blindsided Hartogs with his actual report, which said none of that. Absolutely none of that. I'm surprised that with a report like that, he still got into the military. Well, there, there wasn't a report like that. That's what I'm saying. He, he, his report didn't say any of that. He, he, it was falsely reported that, that he said all that, but he never. They, they actually obtained his report and, and quoted to him from it. What he really said was that he had a, a that Oswald had a personality disorder, that he was a, uh, you know, basically a, a quiet kid who, who didn't speak unless spoken to, all that sort of stuff. That was all, that was all he said, and, he, and that he knew he was a father figure. I've, I've, now I've heard that, but when he was blindsided by his basically by his own report, did he not make a stand or talk about openly that he that he didn't say those things? No, he he, he assumed he had written those things. Oh, he, they they actually ambushed him. They they said, you know, this is what was reported in the paper that you said blah blah blah, and he said, yeah, I said all that in the report. That's the language I use. The, the kid had troubles and, and needed help uh, and should have been should have been put in a, in a suitable institution. That was my recommendation. Um, and then they said, well, listen, we've got your actual report here and none of that's there. All you said was that he's got this personality disorder, uh, i.e. he's incredibly shy and withdrawn. That was it. Huh. And then, when, okay, so when it comes to his military um, career, let's, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, after he gets accepted, what happens after he's accepted into the Marines? Okay, after he's accepted into the Marines, he uh, sits a, a test to see what sort of role he would be best suited for. 
they also take into account uh, any work experience you've got beforehand. You know, the only work experience you had before that was as a courier on the docks in New Orleans. So that should have been factored into any consideration of, of what role that, that he'd basically been a runner, you know, delivering messages, that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, he, based on his results, they, they put him into uh, electric, is it a little, hang on, I'll find it, electric aviation uh, work, but I can't remember the exact name of it. Okay, it was an aviation electronic operator. So yeah, basically a, a radar operator. Radio, radio and radar, they covered. Um, so that was his, what they call the MOS, the MOS, uh, his military specialist, uh, special position that he was qualified to do. Um, and then they sent him off to all the training for that. I think he spent time in Mississippi and a couple of other states learning all the, all the technical aspects of that. Uh, then he was stationed in uh, California in preparation uh, for a, a, a posting at Atsugi, as you said before, in Japan. Um, it, was, it was only a couple of weeks after arriving in Japan that he, he, he was actually court-martialed for the first time. He had two court-martials over there. Uh, the first one was because he accidentally discharged a pistol uh, and wounded his arm in, in the process. Um, he accidentally wait. He accidentally discharged the pistol and wounded his arm. The, the, that he privately owned. It wasn't wasn't issued by the Marines. Um, and they just only about a month before he arrived, they changed the the. Um, the legal aspects of, of what has to happen with private ownership of weapons, uh, and you have to register it with the army to to actually be able to be in possession of it. And um, and he obviously been unaware of the new of the new ruling and didn't register it. So that was what they basically. It wasn't that he accidentally shot himself; it was that he hadn't registered the weapon that uh, that he was in trouble for. Uh, now what happened there was he had a he had a uh, deduction in one pay um, as a fine and a suspended sentence of 28 days in the brig. So that's where that stood. Now, when it comes to the reports that he was dancing and saying a bunch of communist views inside of his Marine barracks, is that true? This all comes from um, a book called Legend, I think. Um, where a lot of his military buddies were allegedly interviewed and reported all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff. That he was out drinking and yada, yada, yada. That he had girlfriends and, or that he actually had a, uh, a, a, um, a girlfriend that was really a boyfriend, if you know what I mean. Okay, um, so it's added fantasy stuff, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I have serious doubts about that book. I think there was some um, 
some help with that book, if you know what I mean, from from certain agencies. Well, it doesn't make sense because if you look at his characteristics and like you said earlier about him being like a loner type, a quiet guy, I mean, that verifies with all the witness accounts and all the statements that were made later about him during the interview um, of all the witnesses and people that were around him, like Marina and Ruth um, after the assassination happened, you know, that he only liked, I mean, there's accounts of the abusive relationship and stuff like that, but he was mostly seen as this person that didn't say much, didn't even eat much. He would just drink coffee or something like that. Um, which I mean, I can buy, it just doesn't make sense that he would have a bunch of girlfriends. He seems more like a, you know, quiet loner, shy type. I think the only reason he got Marina. I've, I've got my, I've got, I've got my own, um, my own theory about Oswald in that, in that, um, that he was on the, on the spectrum is my belief uh, on the autistic spectrum um which means he was socially awkward um i've, I've interviewed a, a, a lady who was 16 when she met oswald in new orleans and she was under the impression that he was flirting with her even though marina was in another room of the house now i, I don't believe that was the case although i think that might have been the impression he gave her, but I think it was that he was just uneasy in her presence. Simple as that, and acted oddly, and she took that as flirting. Well, it depends if you think Marina and Oswald's relationship was real. I think, I, well, you know, I, I think it was because it sort of has to be. You, you, you can't fool people with stuff like that, but that, um, you know, it's a, it was as real as any forced marriage. If you if you know a lot of European countries, uh, arrange marriages uh, for their children, and the children have got no no say in who they marry. They, they they a lot of those marriages actually do work. Some of them don't. Some of them are terrible. Some of them are horrible. But some of them actually do work. And uh, there's no reason why even if this was an arranged marriage, um, that it couldn't work as a real marriage as well. If you, if you can see where I'm coming from there. I do, but I think if you look at his aspects of what he was doing in Russia and you look at Marina had other guys before Oswald and they all kind of fit this American description. Mm. Yeah, um, look, she, she saw Oswald as, way, as a way out for sure. Uh, but there's also some strangeness about that. She, um, six months into their marriage, it was suddenly decided that, that she needed to have a break on her own. Now, because of a communist country, workers got did get proper breaks and all that sort of stuff and did get uh, sponsored to go on holidays or whatever. And they even had, you know, places around where they could go on holidays. Um, but in her case, she wanted to go visit a uh, aunt uh, who lived in the Ukraine. Um, as I say, alone without Oswald after six months of marriage, also it's very strange. But the the thing the thing about that is that the Ukraine uh, was where the Russians had a fake American town built um, to prepare. Wait, what? They had a fake American town built? They built a fake American town with fake Americans, fake everything that 
replicated small town America, okay, right down to uh, ranch houses. And funnily enough, where does Ruth end up? Where, uh, where does Marina end up? Living in a ranch house with Ruth. It, it actually specifically specified that the houses they had in this fake town were ranch houses, and that was the design of Ruth's place. It's all uh, that's that's a weird coincidence. It's a it, it could be just a coincidence, but um, this was all all just prior to her coming to America, and that was what the place was for. And it was just a weird like she wanted to visit. The Ukraine in October. The it'd be like me wanting to, you know, spend my holidays in Guantanamo Bay or something. You know what I mean? Well, before we go, I gotta go back to Japan real quick. When he was when he was at Atsugi, did he get VD? Is that true? Is that a lie? No, that's well. It, it, there's VD and there's VD. It, it, it wasn't ever proven. The, the, the actual document says the, the actual document says he got into the line of duty, which was the standard wording for anyone getting VD in, in the military. So that was real. That was real, okay. but it, it wasn't necessarily sexually transmitted VD. Is what I'm saying. So he could have got it from like a drink or something. Yeah, they, they didn't. They didn't bother proving because what they were giving him was working. So they didn't bother testing whether it was sexually tra transmitted or not. I mean. That's like me, I had a spider bite once, but they didn't actually test me for a spider bite because what they were treating me with was working. So as you said, well, it could have been a spider bite, could have been something else. Did they explain what he got? It was, it was a VD, but there's, there's um, well. Was it like gonorrhea? What is it? But yeah, yeah, yeah. Hang on, hang on. You can't get gonorrhea from a drink, Greg. <laughs> no, I, I, I Yeah, we got to clarify this. I got to, because uh, I've heard of it multiple times and I've been sent a document that said he got some type of venereal disease and I just can't respect, I can't remember what, if it was gonorrhea yeah. or not. It's okay, Hang Google on. it. Anyone? I need to know if this is true. This is kind of like upsetting me because here's where we say is like when someone writes a book, it's hard to tell if they're adding something. Like I didn't believe Anthony Summers um, thing about Hoover until I saw the photos and just for people that are watching this, I'm going to, I, and I called this a conspiracy for the longest time. And then I found the photos and I'm going to pull it up on screen real quick while Greg's looking for the venereal disease that Oswald caught. Um, Greg, did your screen switch over to see what I'm showing? Yep. So this is Hoover in a dress. I thought that was a conspiracy and I still don't even verify this. I don't know. But then I, I started looking more into this. And then this document also says um, something at the effect of right here on the bottom Sherman. Uh, I don't know who that name is. Clyde Tolson. I think um, the person Clyde Tolson was, his, was his assistant and alleged lover. Okay. Well, there's this photo. I don't know. I don't. Okay. So here's my thing. If this isn't real and this is manipulated, then that means if this was around the same time the assassination happened, you can start getting to the level of the backyard photographs being manipulated as well. So I'm just prefacing well, that. Well, but, they were, but yeah. Yeah. But towards the bottom right here, there they are. And now here's the thing that I learned about Hoover that I did not know. 
So Hoover didn't just look for communists. He was rooting out all things. He was known as a Puritan. And I've talked to biographers that actually stand on Hoover's side and say Hoover was doing a good thing. I don't necessarily agree, but I like to talk to both perspectives on my show. He's holding hands with his assistant or whoever. So I, I just go, even if, if you know about his root or his path for rooting out all homosexual acts and everything like that this photo right here is very weird because they're holding hands and the way that he's been described in history and written down after searching for these communists and homosexuals you wouldn't think that he would even touch hands with another man and so i'm starting to see kind of this hypocritical double standard here you know and then you see the man in a dress and i go they could have manipulated this photograph or it is real and that could just be, you know, I and there's a, another document that I have as well, too, that talked about the L.A. FBI was upset with Hoover. Um, I don't know if that was because they maybe thought that they were being lied to in a sense because Hoover was covering some things and the mob actually did have photos. But I think it's well-known information that Hoover didn't even acknowledge the mob. Um, and that theory that was out there was that the mob had pictures of him in a dress. And there's an interview with. Yeah, that was that guys. was it. Someone's. <laughs> So well, I, yeah. I just I I can still consider that a conspiracy, I guess. But that's the photo, and that is a document that I have, and I just showed that. So I mean, I don't know what that is—if that's a manipulated photograph or if that is real. Um, I mean, I'm not going to blame the guy what he does in his free time. Syphilis is what he had. That's syphilis. what it is. Syphilis. Yeah. Can, I, you can probably get that from a drink, maybe. Can you look that you, up? Well, you get syphilis from a drink. You, you can because that they. It's in the reports that they didn't prove that it was sexually transmitted. So, um, in any case, going back to going back to that, yes, he did have syphilis. Okay, the, the thing of it is that he was actually put in hospital for a week or so with that, which is just crazy, absolutely crazy. I um, have worked on this case with a couple of Vietnam vets at various times. I've also been in touch with a number of other uh, Vietnam vets, and they all, to a person, all say that you didn't get hospitalised with VD in in the, in, the, in the military because to do that, half the base would be always in hospital. It was just rampant, and all that happened was that they gave you the medication, uh, sent you on, put you on light duties if that was warranted and barred you from going off base until you were over it. Okay. Um, well, all right, so let's go back to Russia again. When he's in Russia, what is, what's the first thing he did? Was he, he there a little while before he met Marina? I know he met Marina at a hospital, but I'm still unclear on the circumstances. I've read no, he actually met her at a dance. Okay, so okay, so then the other information about meeting Marina in a hospital because Oswald tried to commit suicide is a lie. Yeah, that was in that wasn't even in Minsk. He met Marina in Minsk, which is a quite a considerable way from from Moscow, where he tried to commit suicide. So yeah, someone's got their wires crossed there. So wait, when he was in Moscow, when he tried to commit suicide, he tried slicing his wrists. Yeah, it was a pretty poor effort though. He basically just scratched the surface more or less. But, but he was in the nothing. hospital. Well, that's a good question. Well, maybe because they. Didn't want to take chances with um, with an international incident of you know having a suicide on their hands, you know, with with this guy. Uh, 
more than a little, um, I guess, overcautious, you might say, in case he tried it again. Um, but, yeah, it was just a – it wasn't much. It wasn't much at all. Um, yeah, because in the report that I read, it said that he tried slicing his wrist. He was hospitalized, but they said – the weird thing was that it didn't leave any marks. And I go, if you're hospitalized for slicing your wrists, it would leave marks. There wouldn't be no marks there. Yeah, I think, I think though, you're talking about a communist country uh, that had the had a much better health system than uh, what you guys might be used to at the moment. Um, and back then, I mean, you were more like, they used to keep pregnant women in hospital for a couple of weeks having a baby now you're in and out in two seconds yeah you know i mean that's that's i mean that's i believe that it's it's a different era a different country so you know they just it doesn't make sense because they said it was because he was homesick and i go well then was that before or after he tried to tear up his u.s citizenship because he did no no it wasn't because he was homesick um okay I'll, i'll give you the rundown he he when he took off for Russia, it was uh, it was only he, he got his visa two days after there was an internal CIA memo uh, requesting that uh, uh, projects against aimed at Russia were listed and, and uh, built up a bit more, uh, and then he's off to Russia. Um, he went via Helsinki which was the only route that he could have got there as quickly as he did. Um, Traditionally, it was almost impossible. Well, it was impossible to get a quick visa to to get into Russia. You'd be waiting weeks, if not months, uh, under normal circumstances. But um, just before Oswald arrived in Helsinki, the CIA in Helsinki had turned the Russian uh, Helsinki uh, diplomat who looked after visas and got him to um, agree to give Americans quick visas. So Oswald arrived there just in time to acquire a visa in one or two days in Helsinki. So somehow he knew the only place to go to in in Europe where he could get get a visa to go to to um, to Russia quickly, and the only way he could have known that was through the CIA, because they were the ones that organised it. Did you look at? Um, there's a document, and I don't know if this is true or not. It's just what the document says, but it talks about that someone was reviewing Oswald's files, and there was things that was drawing flags, like his profile was too. It seemed like somebody padded it with a lot of stuff, and it made me start obviously i believe a little bit more that he was an intelligence asset um i'm just curious if you've ever come across anything like that oswald you know why was he able to get a visa so fast why was he able to expedite a lot of things that that, that I, I don't know I, I don't recall reading anything like that but it sounds like a post-assassination review of his files by someone to me Okay. It sounds like someone sitting down after the assassination and going through his files and saying, well, this is a red flag, that's a red flag, blah, blah, blah. That's what it sounds like to me. Okay. Not something um, that was done not something that was done at the time of the of the trip to Russia. 
Did you ever hear anything about Marina being a swallow? Yeah, yeah, that's more than possible. Um, I I just want to make sure that you know I can verify something that I say. So I'm going to show you this real quick, and we can read it together. Um, this was a document that I came across. Just let me know when it pops up on your screen. It might take. Yep, there you go. So it's from the country USSR. Um, this is from a former KGB officer. So when you know about intelligence operations, I think a lot of people that might not know a whole lot about the Cold War, there was a war still going on. It was an intelligence warfare operation, and it was just basically stealing each other's information. So it says this information is based on reporting from sensitive sources. Any further dissemination of this information beyond the original distribution, including use in briefings and studies or inclusion in computer databases outside of SR division must first be coordinated with the original. Do they account for podcasts? Because me showing this on here, I don't feel like somebody's showing up to my doorstep, like use the file without my permission. But it says, according to senior staff officers from Mint's KGB counterintelligence school um, and department, uh, what is it? American targets of the second chief directorate, internal security and counterintelligence SCD headquarters. Ex-Marine Lee Harvey Oswald was an agent of the KGB and was one before he met his wife, future wife, Marina. The Minsk UNKGB or K or yeah, KGB, had recruited Marina as a swallow, Soviet female prostitute for use in sexual entrapment operations. Marina was directed against Oswald, who fell in love with her when he was living in Minsk. It was unclear whether the local or regional UN KGB was involved. Although she was interested in Oswald, Marina was more interested in getting away from the USSR and poverty. The UKGB uh, considered her an agent, albeit a reluctant one. Circa the late 1950s, following his defection to the USSR, Oswald was resettled in an apartment house close to both the Minsk CI School and Victory Square in a beautiful area on the Sivaslok River, where he placed under full surveillance by the Minsk UKGB. The second department, Foreign Counterintelligence of the UKGB, considered Oswald an agent because he provided them with information on his past. It was common practice in a UKGB to claim a foreigner living in its region as an agent. A regional U UKGB would forward the subject's physical description, age, and other information it gathered to KGB headquarters, claiming the subject was a, as a foreign agent. Such regionally claimed agents were not agents in the classic sense, rather than they were an attempt by the regional U UKGB to gain prestige. Circa 1981, Colonel Yershak, um, then an instructor at the Minsk CI school stated that he had been involved in the Oswald case when he was with the Minsk UKGB. The Minsk UKGB kept numerous files on Oswald, which contained agent surveillance and monitoring reports, as well as other information. When source questioned the KGB's uh, rationale for running Oswald, an ex-Marine with very little um, access to information, he was only assured that Oswald was run in Minsk as an agent. Yershak, who held a low opinion of Oswald, stated that Oswald was a bit crazy and unpredictable. Oswald was never required to sign an agreement to cooperate, even though he was cooperating. Yershak believed that Oswald knew he was in contact with the KGB. Oswald was interrogated several times in Moscow by officers from KGB headquarters. Oswald's KGB handlers considered passing him to the first chief directorate foreign intelligence to be handled by a KGB residency in the United States, but the proposal was ultimately rejected because Oswald was considered too unstable. Upon Oswald's return to the U.S., his files would have been sent to the KGB headquarters, probably Department 1 of the SCD. Oswald fell into a deep depression into the USSR. He was homesick and he wanted to return to the United States. He eventually received Soviet permission to return to the United States with his wife, Marie. 
Marina once in the United States. Marina angered the KGB by refusing to continue cooperating with them. So at least six KGB officers and former KGB staff officers told source about the Oswald case. Their stories were consistent. Each of these officers told the source that the KGB did not handle Oswald after his redefection to the U.S. and had no further contact with him. They also said that the KGB never tasked Oswald and certainly never tasked him to kill the president. Um, the rumors in West suggesting that the KGB was involved in Kennedy's assassination were absurd. The KGB would never risk the scandal of assassinating a major world leader. Now, I believe that. I don't believe that they would ever try and risk something that big on hiring Oswald to do any of that. So I've heard theories about that. I don't believe that. But I'm just curious. When it com Have you came across anything I just said in that document? No. It comes from a KGB source. So, I mean, you can take that for what it's worth. It might yeah, be Yeah, yeah. Well, take it for what it's worth indeed. Um, look, the, the facts are these. While, while Oswald was living in Minsk, the, the CIA were running a, a program called uh, Red Cap, which was a, a program of dropping um, Soviet expats back into Russia, parachuting them in. They would be charged with, or they, their purpose was to recruit sleeper cells. Okay, you, you understand what a sleeper cell is? I do. That was with like the MK Ultra project. Yeah, yeah, well, a sleeper cell would be a group of people who would stay quiet and not give away that they're part of any operation until such time as uh, a revolution looked like, like, and then they would rise up and assume leadership roles in that revolution to overthrow the Soviet regime. Uh, so that was his his role, was to recruit these people for sleeper cells. He was instructed to, um, to target uh, sexually promiscuous people, presumably because they were more easily uh, blackmailed to do what they're told. Um, now, what happened was that he was actually discovered by the Soviets, arrested and executed. Uh, when he was found, he had radios, he had ciphers, he had all sorts of spy gear that, that he, that he, that he uh, was using there. Now, I'm, I'm assuming that, that uh, Marino was, did fit that profile of being promiscuous and that if he was targeting those people, that he may well have targeted her at some stage. Um, and I also believe that after he was discovered and executed, uh, what happened was that the CIA put out a, a, an instruction to terminate that program in uh, the Soviet Union because it had been exposed, so they were pulling out. Now, as soon as, as, soon as the CIA issued that uh, request to, to cease all those operations behind the Iron Curtain, that is when Oswald starts talking about leaving and going back to America. Hmm. So if anything, I think, uh, even if, even if uh, Marina was KGB, which I believe may be the case based on her trip to the Ukraine, um, I think she, there's a possibility she was doubled by, by this agent that was dropped behind, uh, that was dropped into Minsk. Uh, his name was uh, Plutovsky, Michael or Mikhail Plutovsky. Do you know exactly what he was, what, like, 
what was going on in Minsk. Like I, I've heard the CIA interview and I've shown the document here on before, uh, before about requesting for Oswald CIA debrief. And they were like, we don't have a file on Oswald for a debrief and ancient agent immensely. I think his name was talked about. I did the debrief. What I did was a debrief and they go, Oh, we didn't classify this as a debrief. So I'm just curious what he was doing in the radio factory. Okay. Well, um, for the first two weeks, he was actually in a secret part of that factory. Um, what went on there, who knows, because it was secret. But it was military-based. Whatever they were doing, they were working on military stuff in there. Now, he was only there for two weeks, and then he was put in the main uh, part of the factory where they just made household TVs and radios. Um, but in any case... What, what you, you've got out of the baseline of what the CIA was after. Any information coming out of uh, the Soviet Union was of extreme importance to them, no matter how banal it may sound to, to ordinary people. So, for instance, they could tell, if you noted down the colour of the earth uh, in a certain area, they, they can tell from that that, for instance, there's likely to be a certain facility nearby that's created the, uh, the, the runoff has made the earth that color. So they can guess that there's a certain facility nearby. So even little things like the color of the ground uh, become important because they, they had no way of getting all this information. They had no one, until they started these programs, they had no one, because uh, there was no travel, there was travel restrictions and all that. They, they didn't have any human intelligence. They, they had to rely on what they could find out from other means. I know when you, when you were using the example of the earth, I just thought of the number of people that happened to be CIA intelligence agents that were like, have the resume of doing something with fucking petroleum. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yep. Yeah. George DeMorenshield who'd been one of them. Um, but uh, yeah, so he, he actually wrote, uh, uh, I guess, a, a story about, uh, life in that factory, because being the Soviet Union, life revolved around your work. You, you went to work before work started, you left after it finished because you had to stay behind to be indoctrinated in whatever and blah, blah, blah. So, and it was work that um, organised dances. That's where he met Marina through a work-related dance. It, it organised your cultural activities. Even the hunting club he was a member of was through work. Um, so that was, um, that was that aspect of that. And he wrote about all that. Uh, he wrote about what he did in the factory, what the roles were. And all that, even though all that sounds very tedious and boring, it was, it was absolutely critical information for, 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 um, for CIA analysts because they could tell from that they can get a picture from that of what's going on, if, if you see what I mean. It's um, I I do. It's just it it's not adding up with the fact that when he returned after this defection, I, I I'm just asking the question: How long were they surveilling him for? Because I have a document that requests for Oswald's two hundred one file, and it talks about. And I think even John Sunheim of the AARB said they destroyed a file on Oswald as well, too. Um, but they talked about that the normal 201 file was packed 
with more than what a basic 201 file is. So that means they weigh, I mean, I think it was reported in the official story that there was only two small files on Oswald, but they had way more than that on him. Yeah. Okay. Well, as far as a, a debrief after his return goes, I, I believe that he was debriefed by his own family on his return. Uh, he got together with his brothers. They excluded their mother from the meeting. They got together uh, for the um, Thanksgiving celebrations in 1962. Uh, they had a get-together. I believe Oswald was debriefed by his brother, John Pick, during that time. I say that because um, John Pick actually kept a, a diary of, uh, of, his, of his expenses on that trip. So he wrote down the number of miles he travelled to get to his brother's place for this family reunion. Now, that's typically done. You record your mileage typically so that you can claim it as a tax claiming against your taxes as work-related. So he was, by, by doing that, he was admitting or, or saying to the tax office, look, this trip was work-related. So if it was work-related, work how does a family get together work-related unless he's debriefing them? And he was actually uh, working in uh, US Air Force bases where they were conducting MKUltra-type experiments. Now, when we say that, I want to preface it with, and I'm sorry if I'm pulling up documents, but I want to make sure that I'm just, I'm kind of finding things that you're also mentioning. So it's kind of backing you up as well, too. But this was from the United Press International, and it says Lee Harvey Oswald, the assassin of President John F. Kennedy, may have been one of those given LSD in a CIA test program in the late 1950s and early um, Rolling Stone magazine contends if Oswald was sent to Russia on some covert task, and it's quite possible that he was given LSD as part of his training. Oswald, some believe, may have been a U.S. agent while in the Soviet Union and the CIA. The article claims often administered LSD to agents who were destined for dangerous overseas missions so they could experience the drug. So I want to say we're talking to people about intelligence operations and also diving into the MK Ultra subject. In one of the reports I pulled up with LSD interrogations when I was in a conversation with David Denton and Randy Benson, they did talk about reviving things from the old Rockefeller Commission, which involved mail intercepts and LSD interrogations on people. This is a common tactic with foreign spies or people that are intelligence agents going to another country was that and that's like there's a, a documentary on Netflix called Wormwood about Frank Olson's death of the CIA. You had to try the drug to make sure you knew what was going to happen if it was ever going to be used against you. You could defend from giving national security secrets of your country to the enemies. And this was a fear with Oswald going to uh, Russia. So I go, here we go. They said they didn't have a file on him. But if he's going to Russia and you have documents that well, well known that intelligence operations, you got to prep them before going over there to make sure they don't divulge secrets. That means you would have had a file or surveillance on Oswald in his time in Russia, any accounting or diary of some sort, which we might not have. There might not be any of that left. They might have destroyed it. But I think I mean, do you see where I'm getting here with this whole intelligence operation aspect stuff? I mean, I've heard speculation that he was a part of JM Wave, and I don't know for sure. But I, I, I just think a lot of the stuff's not adding up about this person that had no CIA connections. I think he was. Definitely let's, intelligence let's, let's back up. With, with the report that he wrote on, on the factory in Minsk. Okay, so 
he he wrote this handwritten, handwritten report when he got back to to the US, and, and I shared that to a guy called John Manning. He put all this together for me. Um, he attended uh, the office of a stenographer called Pauline Bates to have the to have his manuscript typed up. So in he trots into this office. Now this wasn't her office. It was actually she worked out of an office of a of a prominent um, a prominent lawyer in Fort Worth uh, called uh, um, Robert Sansom. Uh, and Robert Sansom was a cousin uh, to both Roy Truly and uh, the wife of Fred Corth, who was who was the Navy Secretary and who had deep ties to O and I. So um, John Manning put together this this uh, thesis that um, what Oswald was really doing was using Pauline Bates to pass this information on to uh, to Robert um, Sansom and through Sansom onto ONI and Fred Forth. So that was a way of, of getting that information surreptitiously into the hands of, uh, of the intelligence community. It was done, done on, the, on the pretext of, of having it typed up for himself. Hmm. And where did John Manning get this work from? Sorry, where did he get what from? Where did he get this information from? I thought it's all on the records. It's just a matter of uh, finding it. Well, it's a matter of finding it, but also a matter of okay, who is Pauline Bates? So, what you do is you you find all the information you can about these individuals. She worked out of Robert Sansom's office. So again, you look at him, find out all the information you can about him, and when you do that, you find out his connections to to Fred Corth, the the Secretary of the Navy, and to uh, to Roy Truly through the through the Sansom family, um, and uh, Fred Corth uh, in turn um, connects to Edwin Eckdahl, who was uh, Marguerite's last husband. So, in other words, a stepfather to Oswald. He was actually uh, Fred Corth was actually uh, Edwin Eckdahl's uh, lawyer in their divorce. Now, is it true that Margaret also dated some members of the mafia or is that a lie? That's possible very early in life, but when you say the mafia or whatever, um, they might've been on the periphery or whatever they weren't, they wouldn't have been deep, uh, deeply involved. And, and um, you're probably talking about the, the Dixie mafia rather than the Italian mafia anyway. Okay. Um, she was she was better connected to some very prominent lawyers earlier in her life than, than mob figures, and they and any connections to any peripheral mob figures were probably through those lawyers. Yeah, I tell you, I tell you what she did do. She um, she was working on a on uh, a base in, in New Orleans, a naval base, as a telephonist. She got sacked. She she got fired from that position because she'd been out dating some of the 
some of the uh, naval navy men from the base and stayed out too late and was too hungover to go to work the next day. So she got the she she was fired over that. But the funny thing about uh, the the bases that it was one of the bases that that marijuana was being tested uh, as a as a truth serum, and they were using it on unsuspecting uh, naval men. So who knows if she was actually being used as part of that way, taking these guys out, getting them high, bringing them back, and, and having them questioned to see how they react under the influence. Now. That, I mean, with Mar Margaret Oswald, she knew a lot about Lee Oswald, um, and I know the relationship was complicated, but a lot of that child resentment might come from the fact that she wasn't really around a whole lot when Lee, or I mean, they lived together, I guess, but she wasn't like an involved parent, I would say. Well, that's, that's the official story. I mean, she was pilloried mercilessly after the assassination. Uh, because she was defending her son. Yeah. So, I mean, that goes without saying that, that, that they attacked her uh, personality, they attacked her history, they attacked her left, right, and center over anything and everything. But the fact is, she had no choice. She had to work. Well, she was the only one um, in any of the photos. If you look at Ruth Payne, um, I think she's sitting on her knees on the floor. Um, and then there's. Uh, Margaret Oswald, and then there's Marina Oswald sitting on a couch in Ruth Payne's house. And Margaret's the only one holding a tissue up to her face that looks upset that Lee is dead. Um, everyone else kind of just has like this emotionless expression on their face. But then there's this interview from, um, it's for the public affairs fast from this the Daily Drum. It's dated January 20th, 1981. Um, Oswald, the CIA and the mafia. So Margaret Summers, some names personally crop up in the news and Lee Harvey Oswald is one of those. Steve North spoke with Oswald's mother. Steve North, ever since the day of President John F. Kennedy's assassination, November 22nd, 1963, Miss Oswald had insisted that her son was an innocent patsy, a victim of conspiracy, as was the president. It was not until 1979 that the House Select Committee on Assassinations agreed with her in part that there had been a conspiracy, although it considered Oswald to be guilty along with the others. That committee report also indicated that Miss Oswald herself was somehow caught up in the intricate web of connections between Oswald, the CIA, and the mafia, but she always denied that as well. Throughout the years, Miss Oswald's major arguments remain the same. Miss Oswald's really, uh, really the only thing that matters is proof of evidence that he killed President Kennedy. And there is no proof uh, to this day and any of the documents, any of the books that have been written of Lee Harvey Oswald actually being found with a gun in his hand and killing President Kennedy. He was placed in the book depository and they had a perfect patsy. They set him up. I mean, when I read that, Margaret Oswald knew a lot about her husband. I mean, not her husband, her son, uh, Lee. Marina, I don't know if it was because Marina was giving her information or her brother or his brother was she knew a lot about her son where i go they had to be talking now i know that he wrote letters in russia to margaret oswald but i know that was just like a cover he, he was just doing that asking for money or doing something of that sort i think his brother even loaned him some money as well too to return home for his visa um that's what i've heard um like I said, it gets very, very complicated. I believe he was an intelligence asset to a point, and there's a lot of weird connections that start lining up with it as well, too. But I'm trying to find it grounded in some sort of document, which I'm pretty sure we probably don't have. Marguerite was telling people um, from the moment Oswald disappeared in Europe 
because there was a period where no one knew where he was. Um, and she was desperately trying to find out where he was and she contacted the State Department. Now, around that time, she was actually telling people, uh, like a doctor and people like that, that her son was an agent. Yeah, I know, but I'm just, I'm curious that's, where, she, where That's, that's, that's 1960, she's saying that. Yeah, I know, she, she, she was saying it before the assassination happened. Yeah, 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 that's right, yeah. That's three years before. Did you ever look into why Mark Lane got fired as Oswald's lawyer? He never was his well. He, he was he represented Marguerite. He was never. I mean, I don't know if he can be representing a dead person. Um, she tried to get the Warren Commission to accept him as uh, Lee's legal spokesperson. But they wouldn't. They rejected that idea because, quote unquote, this is a fact-finding commission. It's not a court. He's not on trial. We're just looking for the facts, which was total bullshit, of course. But that was an excuse for not allowing him to sit in on every interrogation, on every, on every uh, interview that they had. Well, also, which is what she wanted. Was also with the fact in a legal proceeding, if the person who kills or does something like what uh, allegedly Lee Harvey did, you would have to go through this person and that person could have a lawyer that could represent them. But since Lee was dead, they didn't have to go through all that work around. His, his, his death um, fixed a lot of problems, a hell of a lot of problems. Yeah, they could easily go anywhere they wanted with their investigation. Yeah. Um, but what they did was they compromised with Marguerite. They wouldn't allow Mark Wayne. But they actually got uh, the head of some big um, lawyers' guild in America to, to sit in, in on uh, all the um, all the hearings. But there was only one or two occasions where he actually even asked a question or interrupted anything. Like he was more than useless. You know, he was absolutely pointless being there. Do you think that Mark Lane actually had the ability? I mean, there's some HSCA testimonies I've seen that have Garrison asking really hard hitting questions and kind of really putting the hammer and revealing a couple of things as well, too. But there's also like there's not a lot of there's a lot of back and forth, which I constantly see. And you can see that in the Watergate admissions as well, too. There's constantly pointing fingers, um, requesting of documents. The only real research I really trust is like Malcolm Blunt's archives. Harold Weisberg's archives is a good one as well, too. But they were ones that were getting information and kind of I wouldn't say releasing it, but at least documenting in a sense to where we have some grounded, at least information. Like I said, the 201 file that I found out was longer than a normal 201 file. That comes from Harold Weisberg. Harold Weisberg um, was digging in a lot of areas that were very germane uh, to the assassination. So uh, I, I, I have a lot of respect for the guy. So you trust he, his work? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Can I, I don't share? agree. Oh, I mean, none of us agree 100% with everyone. There's areas where I, I, I disagree with him, but overall, his work was excellent. I, 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 like I said, I use his archives on some things, but I found this, and this is from the Harold Weisberg archives. Um, 
this is Dear Colonel uh, Folson. The Marine Corps records supplied us reveal that on May, on the 3rd of May, 1957, Lee Harvey Oswald was granted clearance to handle classified matter up to up to and including um, confidential. However, we have received uh, sworn testimony from John M. Donovan, who was assistant operations officer and training officer at Marine Air Control uh, Squadron Number Nine in Santa Ann and the effect that Oswald's job required a secret clearance. Moreover, two of Oswald's fellow enlisted men at, I don't know, have testified that Oswald lost his clearance and was therefore relegated to non-sensitive jobs. It would be helpful to the work of the commission if you would determine whether Oswald ever received clearance to handle higher than confidential material and whether any clearance given to him was taken away. Um, I just, that's from Jay, that's from Jay Lee Rankin. I see his name pop up a lot when it comes to Harold Weisberg's archives. Uh, he has a lot of memos and documentation. Another issue I have is that some of this documentation, you can't even read the fucking print. And I know that was done on purpose. They could have sat there for a minute and Xeroxed it or copied it and made it easily readable because there are so many documents that are easy it's, to read. It's, it's frustrating. It is frustrating. Um, My site's not that good. So trying to read this shit, I'm squinting, fucking making it worse. You have no excuse. At least I'm old enough to have four. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just stubborn. I want get glasses. Did he have some type of clearance in 1957? Um, no, he, he, he definitely had clearance. I think um, from memory, it was up to secret. But I, I, I'm flying by memory, so I could be wrong. Okay, I'm just making I sure. Can, I can, I, I'll look that up later and, and email if you like. Because there is some things, like I have a letter from... Uh, some guy and it's all in Spanish. And I actually sent it to um, Joe Green and David Denton, David, who runs the Lancer project. And I was like, have you seen this letter? And I, like I said, I had a, it's all in Spanish. So I don't know Spanish. So what I did was I just copied all the words and I put it onto Google and I just put it like, what's the English translation of it? If I can find it real quick, I can um pull it up real quick. I got to make sure I can find the, document i i just like i said there's so many aspects of this where i don't know if this is real i don't know if this is something that you know was just i mean there was ideas that he was meeting at lovefield airport with cubans so the letter the document says i'm writing to you again since the last time we saw each other in miami and this is the spanish guy to lee R lee oswald he goes you took the books from hotel and i hardly have any i will tell you that the man plans to visit that soon and you must close the deal as quickly as possible as i told you before miami i recommend you to be careful and you do not anything crazy with the money he gives you yes i hope you will not disappoint me and other dreams will come true after that i'm going to highly recommend you to the boss who surely will be very interested in meeting you because they need men like you i saw you with my own eyes and the boss was amazed jay well lee practice your spanish a lot for when you come home to havana because this land of freedom of beautiful women and rich havana tobacco don't forget to do everything i told you to the letter and don't leave anything that could lead clues and then my receive my letters destroy them as usual after matter i will send you money and we'll see you here in miami where we always are i don't know what that means i'm just saying there's a lot of things where i go how do i verify if this is true or not i'm just i wouldn't even bother trying to verify it it's crap. I'll tell you now, it's crap. Okay. Because there's there's apparently, I mean, I've seen documentation that someone said, oh, I saw Lee Harvey Oswald exchange, you know, information or money between a bunch of Cubans at Love Field Airport for the assassination. I go, well, that just doesn't fit anything. Yeah, the, same, the same situation was 
happening in, in Mexico City where he allegedly uh, was given $5,000 in the embassy as a down payment on the assassination. Now, I mean, things just don't happen like that in real life. If you, you, you don't do something like that in the open where there's cameras everywhere and people can see what's going on and overhear, which is what happened, or allegedly what happened, that they were overheard and, and reported on. It's, it's, it, things just don't happen that way. You, you do that sort of stuff in safe houses or whatever. Now, have we gotten any information from the documentation that is filed on Oswald when it comes to the Soviet Union? There was a book written about Oswald's time in, in the Soviet Union from the early 90s. Uh, very famous author whose name I can't draw on at the moment, but um, he was given a lot of the information from the, by the KGB uh, when he was writing the book. That's how famous he was. He was able to do that sort of stuff. Uh, the book itself has been largely panned because it, it concluded that Oswald was guilty, but uh, that's another story. It does have useful information in Do you think he was 100% innocent? 100% innocent, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, and, and um, I said to you before that I, I hope to be able to walk away from all this on the 60th while I'm hoping uh, that um, his innocence will be the the uh, the majority um, opinion by then. If 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 that's the case, job done. I stand in the boat that Oswald's innocent on both the Walker shooting and the Kennedy assassination. But I mean, if he was involved in some way, maybe I don't know. That's that's like the only thing I could you know, maybe get there is that maybe he was part of something. I just believe that there was a lot going on, obviously, in 63, then a lot more than just the case closed aspect of things, that it was just one guy that did it. Um, multiple different investigations, then the extent of Oswald's background. I mean, was he a part of MK Ultra early on? Like I mentioned to you, that document that I showed you, was it from 62 about was Oswald given LSD? Now, the MK Ultra project, people didn't know that they were experimenting with LSD until around the 70s. That wasn't verified then until the hearings came out. So when I see a letter from General Walker, whether you consider him a liar or not, I believe he is a liar. But he also talked about don't let him be seen while he's under arrest by any psychiatrist because they might perform these KGB tactics of a Russian lobotomy or give an LSD. Now, that's early stages of MKUltra documentation before MKUltra was actually officially reported happening was the same thing we have with Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby's psychiatrist that administered a flu shot to him was joy on west you know and then immediately after joy on west sees him these months of decline of his freaking health um having these i mean he broke his reading glasses he was slamming his head up against the wall this was all after a flu shot was administered joy on west till his dying day threatened to sue anybody that associated him with mk ultra he lied in the mk ultra hearings and then it didn't come out until after he died what they found was transcripts from his university letters to one of the main people, Sidney Gottlieb. So he lied about that in court. He committed, he lied. And so you get into this aspect of 
did joy on west give him a flu shot now when me and you talked and i asked you about this idea of jack ruby's testimony in court saying they gave me cancer you said what i think he came across was a document and just for everyone out there listening i think it's really important to bring up this aspect of injecting live cancer cells in the people because people hear that and they roll their eyes so there is this document with a past guest of mine who talked about he wrote a book called acres of skin that talked about ohio penitentiary so this says doc this at the top says new york forgotten cancer scandal and this was for um the new york post when they posted his name is alan um hornbloom he was on my show recently so this is dr chester southam was the driver of study that injected live cancer cells into unknowing patients in the 1960s the front page headline of the new york world telegram on january 20th 1964 just a year after the assassination shocked readers charge and i'm pretty sure ruby didn't die till 67 if i'm not mistaken right that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, I mean, this was before Jack Ruby was even administered a flu shot. So now you get into this aspect of getting injected with. Yeah, cancer. but that, that story, that story was bubbling away in the media for, for a few years. Yeah, but okay. it, 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 was, it didn't cycle out of the media for, for a long well, time. I'm just trying to show maybe where he got the idea that they injected him with cancer. I probably think that they injected him with LSD because Joyon West was, if you look up his well, name. Well, I think that's you know, I think that's what I said to you before. I think they deliberately left one of the stories around for him to read. Well, I, to, I, to, to, just for people listening, I want to preface this, but this was in 1964 before Jack Ruby even made that statement that they injected him with cancer. So when people hearing that would say, oh, they injected him with cancer. I even had a cancer biologist say oh, that I'm not into that deep state talk. I sent him this article and he goes, whoa, it's real. And I showed him the Ohio penitentiaries where it happened. It says the front page headline. It says the stunning accusation was that the Brooklyn's Jewish chronic disease hospital a facility known for serving an elderly population and those in need of long term physical care was conducting cancer experiments on unsuspecting non-cancerous patients. So. And this is not just one university. This is like Ohio. This is a so bunch of time. Stuff. Time was even running stories on it. I mean, you can't get more mainstream than time. Well, that's the thing is that when you mention something like this, our public consciousness in the media is like it's so fast paced. It's hard to keep track of this type of stuff. So I'm just trying to show a preface of there's this account from before. So it's not deep state or conspiracy talk when he says something like that now to back up that claim of jack ruby saying i have cancer cells injected into me or they gave me cancer i would need to see a document saying that they administered that but the issue with mk ultra which i like i said i mean you both agree it's probably lsd the the all the letters and all the things from mk ultra have all been destroyed when those people left office that's why you and cameron sydney gottlieb um joy on west there's very slivers of documentation that are mostly letters written back and forth and we only know mk ultra exists from transcripts i think the plan was to to um whether it was lsd or whatever was to make him appear as crazy as possible to to abort any chance of a retrial that, that he would be put in a a psych hospital and forgotten about they didn't like oswald the last thing they wanted was another trial especially since this one was going to be outside uh, dallas where they couldn't control it did you ever look into hoover's investigation on um oswald's murder by jack ruby hoover's investigation of yeah, like he, he wrote a, a letter I can show, but I mean, just the aspect, I think everybody when Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald was suspicious. Well, as, as you probably know, the, the FBI had no immediate jurisdiction in the case. It was purely a state murder to be tried by the local authorities. 
the um, it was only when, uh, even though they injected themselves into the case before this, it wasn't until Ruby shot Oswald that they actually had uh, a, a legitimate reason uh, to go into the case, and that is that the murder of Oswald was a, was a uh, and this is a joke, it's got to be, but what they claimed was that, that his murder was a uh, um, denial of his rights. Civil right was a civil rights violation. What the right to a fair trial? No, no, no. Well, no, it was a no. His, his murder was a civil rights violation. That so that allowed them access to the case. Okay, that doesn't make sense, but it doesn't make sense. But that, honestly, that's what they said. But did you ever look into the close associations that if there was ever verified proof that Oswald and Jack Ruby knew each other? No, that again, that's there's all sorts of speculation about that. People say that uh, just before um, Ruby jumped out to shoot Oswald, Oswald allegedly gives him a knowing look. <laughs> yeah, right. If someone jumps out at me with a gun, I'm going to give him a knowing look. I'm going to look at him. You know? <laughs> What's a knowing look anyway? He, he's just looking at him because you can see he's got a freaking gun in his hand. Well, the document that I was talking about actually addresses what you just said. So it says, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover said as follows. There's nothing further on Oswald's case except that he is dead. Last night, we received a call in our Dallas office from a man talking in a calm voice and saying he was a member of a committee organized to kill Oswald. I'm guessing that's the thing they say about Jack Ruby warning that he was gonna, he was hired or given the orders to kill Oswald. He didn't want to do it, so he was looking for a way out. The first thing he did uh, was ring contacts uh, in in uh, unions, and, and when you're ringing those guys, they're all mobilized anyway. He was looking for them to or for someone to order him out of Dallas, so he'd have, have an excuse not to be there, and and thus not have to shoot Oswald. That didn't work. His next effort was um, to uh, ring up the, the Dallas police, uh, the FBI, and uh, the uh, Dallas Sheriff's Office, giving these warnings that you're reading about here. The Dallas Sheriff's Office and the FBI both reported uh, those threats to um to the Dallas police the Dallas police didn't say jack shit about the one they got for years when the document was found and the person that actually took the the call uh by the Dallas police actually said that it sounded like jack ruby so you know what i mean it, these th these things to me are so interesting because if you read it says we at once notified the chief of police and be assured um Oswald would be given sufficient protection. This morning, we called the chief of police again, warning of the possibility of some effort against Oswald, and he again assured us um, adequate protection would be given. However, this was not done. They brought him out of the city jail and were taking him to the county jail when a man stepped out and shot him in the stomach. This man was arrested at once. He goes under the name Jack Leon Ruby, but his real name is Rubenstein. He ran two nightclubs in Dallas in the reputation of being a homosexual. Immediately after the shooting, Oswald was moved to Parkland Hospital and died about 45 minutes ago. We had an agent at the hospital in the hope that he might uh, make some kind of confession before he died, but he did not. 
Ruby says no one was associated with him and denies having made the telephone call to our Dallas office last night. He says he brought the gun or bought the gun about three years ago. And then he guessed he guessed he grieved over the killing of the president um, made him insane. That was a pretty smart move on his part because it might lay the foundation for a plea of insanity later. That's so what Hoover just said there is actually mentioned um, later about uh, his lawyer made up the whole thing that he had an epileptic seizure that caused him to shoot Oswald, which doesn't make sense. And that was found out later, but the Warren commission wrote that down as fact. So it's funny that J Edgar Hoover put that there saying he's might be using this as the pleading. Um, yeah. And that, that, was, that was a bad move anyway, because uh, the epilepsy as insanity defense uh, had been um, shot down in previous cases. So, you know, it was never going to work. Did you notice it says that they did not really have a case against Oswald? And so we gave them our information. We traced the weapon. We identified the handwriting. We identified the fingerprints on the brown bag. I thought they couldn't find any identification on the brown bag and they couldn't trace the weapon. They only traced it to an AJ Heidel, which is the creation of the AJ Heidel ID. The, um, that's, a, that's a book in itself, the whole Heidel thing. Um, there was a fingerprint on the bag. Um, there was a palm print on the rifle on the on a part that's normally covered, I think. Um, and there were Oswald prints on one of the boxes that was used as an alleged sniper's nest. But all of that stuff can be. Um, rigged up. So, I mean, the, the thing of it is that uh, the palm print on, on the rifle for start was missed originally, sent to the FBI, they missed it, it was sent back to Dallas, and then all of a sudden it was found. And in the interim, what had happened in the interim between those two events was that they had uh, given Oswald a, a test to test to see if he had uh, gunpowder residue on his hands. Now that's done with- That's uh, the paraffin test. That's the paraffin test, yeah. And um, what had happened was that, that Fritz had ordered that he be palm printed and given the paraffin test in his office, not in the forensic uh, lab that they had there. Um, what that meant was that he was palm printed and they used an English pad, which uses uh, a metallic iodine type stuff. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it's it's it's, it's metallic. Um, so they gave him the palm print, palm print, and, and got that, and then did the paraffin test. Now what that that what they did in order uh, in those in that particular order was was make sure. Uh, that the paraffin test would show uh, uh, residue that consisted with a, with gunpowder, because the residue uh, is found in all sorts of places other than gunpowder, like the ink in the books that he was stocking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ink in the book and the and and the material that was used for the ink pad. 
Yeah, but they lied about the paraffin test. They said it wasn't a hundred percent. It was a hundred percent identification of Oswald, but they never took into effect all the books. Yeah, well, they, they, they were trying by media. They leaked that to the media that he that he failed the test, and they didn't say like he was given a test on his cheek as well. But don't don't powder residue can't get to your cheek because of the structure of the rifle. Um, well, I think they also said that when he shot the rifle, someone on like the floor below him or something like that got yeah, sealing yeah, something. Yeah, on yeah, yeah, That's yeah, stupid yeah. as hell. Yeah, but that the whole thing, you, you couldn't make it up as a script because it, it, it reads a B-grade script that the scenarios that they claim happened, and that's part of it, yeah. It's, it's, it, I, but they got away with it. That's yeah. the thing, they, they got away with it. I but mean, um, getting back to the paraffin test, the, the so what happened was that uh, so that he showed residue on his on his hands. They reported that to the media. Uh, they didn't say that um, he was negative for the cheek. They just let the media assume that he was positive for both the cheek and his hand to indicate that he shot a pistol and a rifle. Um, they let them assume that that was the case, um, when in fact it was it was them that caused the bloody the, the residue to be there by by palm printing him. And it was only after that taking that palm print that the palm print was found on the friggin' rifle. I think it's Brian Edwards that said there needed to be eight points of identification when it came to verifying a print. I think the only print was on the inside barrel or not inside barrel. It was yeah. The inside stock, yeah it, was right? a, it was a palm print inside the barrel. Yeah. Okay. And that's what they say that, that, that the rifle barrel might've been changed out because it didn't match. Don't know about that. I, yeah. Like oh, I said, it goes uh, into no. so much minutiae of things yeah. that it's some pretty damn complicated yeah. to make it all. I mean, I'm, I'm not a gun person, so you could probably tell me anything about the a weapon and i believe you well i'm coming across, like i said i'm coming across so many documents and stuff i think it's just interesting i'm trying to understand a little bit more about what's going on and obviously there's a lot of things that kind of conflict um the data doesn't match or some of the documents doesn't match so i saying it's so simple it's just trying to understand oswald is they okay well, as this loan what, what it sounds like to me is you're getting a clear picture that their evidence was a mess yeah yeah okay well that's the reason they they needed him dead Okay, they couldn't take that mess of a case to court, and I that's think, why, with with the protection, it was it was Fritz's idea to have a four man uh, press around him to protect him. Okay, and he was the front man in that four man press. Now it was him that stepped forward a couple of yards to open a car door, which left the shot open for Ruby. It was his plan and his idea to be right on him. So that no shot could be fired at him, and yet he's the one that allowed the shot for walking ahead. Yeah, they should never ever put Fritz in charge of doing. I mean, that was his plan in general to have one person behind him, one person to the left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right yeah. Well, it was totally his plan. I think Bart's done great work on that, being able to kind of detect that Fritz is a dirty, filthy liar. Um, mostly with even Roger Craig. I mean, there's another statement from another cop that was there that talked about, he didn't know who the person's name was, but there was a person that was talking to Fritz for a, a brief amount of time before um, later. Oswald never said anything in his interrogation, which made me think he was waiting for clearance on something. And I think that gets to the point where he starts speaking for a lawyer named John Apt. Um, 
So, I mean, it, it's weird when it comes to Oswald's interviews. He had plenty of time to be able to scream, I didn't do it. Um, but he was very quick in his statements. He just said, I, I was emphatically deny these charges. I'm just a patsy. And it, go, it, go, it goes back to the reports from, from New York when he was 13. Uh, if you have a look at the social work report, uh, you'll see that he uh, wouldn't volunteer information unless you asked him a specific question. And then he would answer with a very specific short answer. That was the type of kid he was, and that's how he was as an adult as well. The interrogator said the same thing. He would answer questions, but not volunteer anything. I mean, that would make it makes sense to your idea that he might have been on the spectrum. Yeah, because yeah, that's that's totally in line with how people on the spectrum operate. I just don't buy the whole like he tried to kill Nixon too and they locked him in the bathroom. No, that no, sounds no, like no. complete horseshit. No. Absolutely complete horseshit. You should there's bathrooms locked from the inside, not the out. Yeah, 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 yeah. You're telling no. me this guy couldn't he could do all these amazing things, but he apparently he couldn't get out of a bathroom. He was, he was gonna he was gonna hijack a plane and fly to Cuba and blah blah blah. Yeah. He got a heavy workload, man. He was <laughs> He, he, he certainly shoved a lot into his short life. Yeah. Um, Greg, I appreciate the time you gave me to at least um, bounce some documents off you and be able to talk to you a little bit deeper about the Oswald. We story. didn't really cover that much of what we started out to talk about. But yeah. we, I thought we, we at least, I mean, like I said, I'm looking through a lot of documents here. At least I could, you know, pass some things on to you. But Just quickly, uh, because it's important. The, yeah. the, like I said to you before, for the uh, pistol offense, he was given 28 days in the brig, okay, but that was suspended. He later uh, had a had an argument with a sergeant and spilled a beer over him accidentally, apparently. But uh, he was also charged with that, and uh, he was given another 20 days for that, and ordered to serve the first 28 days as well. So that was 48 days he was supposed to serve, although he only served 45 for some reason. But anyway, that was 45 days in the brig. He was away from everyone. Now, there's not one person that's ever come forward and said, I served time in the brig with Oswald or I guarded Oswald while he was in the brig. No one has ever said that. And as I said, I've worked with guys on this case uh, who, were in the, who were in Vietnam and they've contacted uh, people who, who were at Atsugi at the time, one of them including a guard, and they all said the same thing, that uh, the debris at Atsugi was just for people uh, coming home late from from uh, from being out in the town, like what they call it, Cinderella leave, where you've got to be back by midnight. Uh, they might have rolled in at half past 12 or something, and, okay, you're in the brig. But they only stay there at night sort of thing, or if they come back drunk or whatever, in the brig for the night. It wasn't for any more serious offence than that. If you were if you were going to be serving 45 days, you were sent to another larger prison on another base. Now, what I believe that this was actually cover uh, for intense study on, on Russian language, that he didn't really serve any brick time at all, that he was sent away for intense study on Russian language. But would that make sense that he didn't have a very good speaking of Russian then? He did. He, 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 
What made you think he didn't have a very good speaking? The KGB that said they could tell that he was a double agent because his Russian was so bad. No, well, he, he around other Russians, he didn't. He pretended he couldn't speak it very well. Yeah. Okay. Because he, he, if he spoke, if he spoke Russian really well, that would that would indicate that he's had lessons, that he's had professional lessons. Uh, he wanted to give the impression that he picked up a little bit himself in the Marines, but no more than that. And I think he did that very well. But he, he uh, when he was in, after he left Japan and went back to California, he actually requested a, a Russian test. Uh, now those tests are so hard that even natives of the language can have trouble passing them. Now, he, he was said to have done poorly in that test, but um, he actually overall got two more questions right than wrong, which which would have been enough uh, to qualify for a monthly uh, extra payment for being a, a speaker of, a, of, of a, an important language like Russian. It would be interesting to find out that if he ever tried speaking Russian with Ruth Payne. Yeah, I'm sure he did, um, because she's commented that his uh, she's commented on on his ability. The the fact that is that Peter Gregory, who was Russian, uh, passed him, qualified him to to become an interpreter. That's how good he was. Okay, he gave him a letter saying that 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 Oswald's Russian was good enough to be an interpreter. I've seen Peter Gregory's name a couple of times. I actually had a document pulled up, but I just closed out my browser of it. Um, I've seen his name mentioned about Oswald a couple of times, and that comes from Harold Weisberg's archives. I would have to refresh my memory with the extent of what he talked about, um, but it was more about just Oswald's you know, ability and the intelligence aspect of things. So, I mean, I'd have to look into that name a little bit more. There, like I said, there's a lot of things that you start finding out that are deeper than just the day in 63 when Kennedy was killed. There's a lot of the things he said after the assassination wouldn't trust, but this was before the assassination. He, he wrote that letter saying that he could be a, an interpreter. Hmm. I think I, I trust a lot of the statements made before the assassination more than I trust statements after the assassination by yeah. a lot of people. There was a lot more time to be manipulated in a sense afterwards. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But Greg, where can people find your links, man? You want to give a shout out to the Reopen Kennedy case? Yeah, reopenkennedycase.formation.com. Just uh, Google Reopen Kennedy case, you'll find it. Uh, and my own personal website where there's more stuff is gregrparker.com. I'm going to link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you again, Greg. Thanks for yeah, joining me. Nice work. Um, Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.